Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by my friends Hui Huin, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Sean. I'm Guy. Guy. <laughs> Sorry. Well, he was go- he was going to say you if you'd let me say good evening. He was coming right at you, I promise. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the other voice you hear is Sean Walker, creative Simple Co. fame. Good evening, Hui. Good evening, Sean. And Good Guy, evening, how are Guy. you? <laughs> I got it covered, Hui. All, right, it covered. all right, all right, all right. <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our own perspectives on how we get things done in our shops. And uh, we also have a Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. So, oh, I also want to say, you know, stay tuned to the end of the show and we're you're going to hear about all the fun goings on in our shops. <laughs> so let's get into it. And I think, Hui, you have the first question. Yes. And this question is from Joshua. And he says, hello, Guy, Hui, and Sean. Over the summer, I made one of the nesting serving trays from a plan in Fine Woodworking Magazine. I used paste wax as my finish. It looked great and really brought out character in the mahogany. Then I used it for its intended purpose on a camping trip. It was much more convenient than bringing the cooking ingredients from the camper to the grill. Then I put the plates with the warm food on it to bring to the table. The heat melted the wax. Did I just ruin my piece by using wax as the only finish? Is there a way to remove it and put something more durable on it like shellac or lacquer? Is there any finish that I could put over the wax if I fix the affected areas? If I have to remake it, I have enough mahogany left over, but I'm cheap and I ran out of wax cotton threads for the handles. Help me, Woodshop Life. You're my only hope, Joshua. Well, um, we talked about removing or trying to evacuate mineral oil from wood, but we haven't talked about removing wax. At least I don't think so, or I can't remember. So... If it were me, I would try using something like naphtha or mineral spirits to dissolve and remove the paste wax. I'd also use a lot of rags or paper towels. Otherwise, you will just be smearing it around and you want to make sure to wipe the mineral spirits off rather than letting it dry on the surface because then it just won't do anything. Um, After that, I'd probably sand the surface to get the same level of sheen across the surface. And then from that, uh, go on to applying whatever finish you want. But before I go to the, his next question, because he actually had two questions here, what what about you guys? Is there a different method to get rid of wax that I don't know about? Or no, would you I do would something. I'd different? follow the same exact recipe we said last episode for removing the mineral the mineral oil. Yeah, I mean to the T. Remove the wax with mineral spirits, scuff sand it, shellac it, then put finish on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. How about you, guy? Well, he doesn't really say what kind of he doesn't state what kind of wood he's using. Mahogany, mahogany I think. It does it says mahogany? There? Yeah, I have enough yeah. mahogany left over, but I'm cheap and I ran out of wax cotton threads oh, okay. for the handles. Okay. okay. Well, there's problem number one, it's mahogany. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a very open grain wood. Right. So the wax is gonna get down into the pores of the wood. Mm-hmm. And even wiping it down with mineral spirits. I think you're going to have a hard time getting it out of the pores. What about sanding it and then reapplying the wax? And sand then- it. That's what I was going to say. Sand it and or run it through a planer and get rid of the first, you know, 16th of an inch. 
32nd of an inch off the top of it. And they'll just be a little bit thinner. Okay. Okay. All right. And then, and then put like a, like you said, uh, you know, a schlack finish on it. Yeah. Okay. So the next question is a more durable finish. Um, I imagine, I mean, wax as he probably discovered has limited protective power. If it were me, I'd probably use like a wiping varnish. Um, it's quick and easy, but shellac is, you know, effective as well. Yeah. And another option is something that's going to be easily repairable. I know the, some of the hard wax oils are easy to repair. Uh, you could go that route and just know that you're going to have to, if you're putting hot stuff on there, potentially repair it, you know, often throughout the year, depending on how much you use it. So you could go that route as well. Yeah. How about you guy? Would you, would you, would you go that route or maybe a different direction? Well, there's, there's a lot of different things you can do. You know, most, most finishes are food safe. So mm-hmm. I, myself, I would just go with a, with an oil finish. Yeah. So like, uh, like literally just oil. Yeah. Either that or, you know, mineral oil or, or an armor seal or something like that. That's, you know, wiping varnish like Sean was talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You get away with that pretty easy. Yeah. I'd probably, well, I, what I was saying was, uh, something like a hard wax oil that's easy to repair because you're going to be working with apparently heat and I don't know how well. By, by hard wax, do you mean like polyx uh, or yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Just for uh, the, how easy it is to, uh, to repair because apparently heat, heat was the, the issue on this. So I imagine it's going to be using, you know, hot plates and putting warm stuff on it. So I don't know when it comes to durability with, uh, a varnish. I've never experienced it with hot items on top of it. Yeah, but but wiping varnish isn't really that difficult to repair. I mean, other than sanding down the surface and then reapplying. Yeah. Oh, it's not. It's just hard wax oil is probably a little bit easier. Yeah. True. Okay. Good. Point. I, I, I don't know. I've never used hard wax oil either. The 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 Osmo or the uh, what's the one that everybody talks about? The Rubio Monaco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't use that stuff. So. Um, mm-hmm. I can't really give an opinion one way or the other to the repairability. I know the the oil finish or wiping varnish finish is really easy to repair. You just rub some more on there and you're done. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how easier it can get. So. Well, don't you have to sand it and all that stuff? I, I've just seen no, I've seen folks really. repair hard wax oil and it just it's it just seems really really simple compared to like a a layered wiping varnish, I guess. I've never really had to repair anything that has a, a rubbing poly on it or a, a rub poly finish on it. But at work, I have where we've had, to, you know, little tiny defects in the finish, you know, even a lacquer finish where you just sand off that little bit with just a little bit of sandpaper and just a little size, the, a spot the size of a, of a dime. And then we just put, poly right over the top of it we're done mm-hmm. and it takes all of 10 minutes to do mm. so right. it's pretty easy well i think you know that kind of answers this question definitely either sanding it down or or using some form of mineral spirits to try to extract as much as you can and then sanding it down or then going to a planer to at least remove the damaged surface and then you've got your hmm, three or four different the three different you know solutions that we talked about shellac oil finish, varnish, a wiping varnish. So, uh, well, Joshua, I hope that helps. Um, I think we're off to Sean. That's right. 
I just bought a new house and with some property and it has a big detached two-car garage that would be my new shop. I was planning to get a Laguna Fusion F2 to upgrade my DeWalt job site table saw, but they are back ordered until August. I can still find saw stops in my area, so it looks like I'll plop the extra money and save my life. At this point, the 52-inch fence is only $100 more than the 36-inch. In your opinion, is the 52 worth the uh, worth the money and the extra space, or is the 36 big enough? I mostly build custom furniture, but will be doing all the cabinets in my new house, remodel, bathrooms and kitchen, as well as bed frames, a master closet building, uh, etc. So a mix of sheet goods and hardwood builds. I don't have a track saw. I use a circular saw with the Bora NGX straight edge system to roughly break sheet goods now. Well, it sounds like to me with your setup now, you could go with the 36 inch to to take it down to the final size. But, you know, I've, I've always considered, you know, what life would be like having a 52 inch uh, fence set up on the saw. If I had the room, if I had the room, I would have gone 52 inch just for the extra capacity for the sheet goods, like you mentioned, for breaking down sheet goods. And, and obviously with that additional room, you're going to have a little bit more room that you could use on the, on the end for something like a router table insert versus using it on like a 36 inch fence. It's going to push it away a little bit further from your, your, uh, blade. So it's going to give you some more room. The downside is you're going to need more room, which we're, you know, we're obviously limited on, but you say you have a big detached two car garage. If you can fit it, I mean, I would recommend getting it. I know I personally, and this is just a personal preference here. Ultimately, you're going to have to make the decision, Will. But um, if it were me, I would, I would obviously, I would get the 52 inch if I had the room. Now, of course, like you say, you can accomplish everything of breaking down the sheet goods roughly with your your uh, circular saw and the guide, and then just use the table saw to take it down to the final size. But you know, I, I've always wanted a 50 a 52 inch fence set up but i just don't have the room and i'm you know also in a two-car garage granted it's not quote unquote a big detached two car so i don't know what size your shop is but just to boil it down if you have the room it's only hundred dollars more i would go for it if you don't have the room there's your answer um i, I just think that uh, the the pros outweigh the cons on going with something like that and you may mm-hmm. buy the 52 and not end up using it you may end up just using it for storage I've seen that happen as well. So just know what you're going to be building. If you have the room, it's only a hundred dollars more. If anything, you get a little bit of horizontal surface to store stuff on if you don't use it. But you know, that's my opinion on the matter. I'm going to pass it off to uh Hui. What size fence do you have now? I have a 52 inch and I put my router table in it, but I have used more than a handful of times the 52, like 48, 49 inch. What were the, what were, what were the circumstances of that? Uh, I think it was some shop cabinets actually, uh, that I was breaking down cabinet backs. Um, but you know, he can do that with the circular saw and the Bora, the Bora clamp, or if you had a track saw, if you wanted to, well, a hundred dollars ain't going to get you a track saw. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I thought about too. I was like, hmm. Yeah. hundred dollars ain't going to get you a track saw. You can't buy a festival track saw for a hundred dollars? Not the no, last but time I checked. <laughs> you can get that small grizzly crappy one for somewhat around a hundred dollars. That's the first one I bought. It was terrible. Yeah, but I, you know, I have the fifty-two inch rip fence, and uh, I'm happy I got it. But uh, there's only been a handful of times that I've actually used it, and it's mainly been for like cabinet backs for the shop cabinets that I've built. Not for, excuse me, not for standard size cabinets at all. Guy, I believe you have a thirty-six inch fence is that right 32 
32. Yeah. That's and, an anchor 32 inch fence. Yeah. And my guess is that you have not wanted or needed more. I have never had anything larger than the 32 inch fence and I've never needed nor wanted anything bigger. Uh, there's been a couple times where I'm like, Oh, it'd be nice to have this. And it's like, okay. So that, that, that situation comes up once maybe every four or five years. It's not worth it. I don't, I don't have the room for it. If I had unlimited room, hell, I'd have a 10, I'd have a slider with a 10 foot throw on it. Yeah. But I don't have the room. Right. So the 36 inch fence or 32 inch fence does everything I absolutely everything I need the table saw fence to do. For me, it doesn't need to be anything bigger than that. Now, something if you're, add- it, if you're doing it, if you're doing a ton of plywood, sure. I mean, that's all you're doing is plywood and you have the room. I'd get the 52 inch, you know, I wouldn't get maybe not necessarily the saw stop, but got a 52 inch uh, table saw and then put uh, the, the saw stop slider attachment on it. Yeah. Or some type of slider attachment. Yeah. 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 If, yeah. if it's a saw stop, obviously. Uh, yeah. It, but it, yeah, that slider attachment can work, can, can go on any saw. It doesn't have to be a saw stop. Right. You, can and, get, and, you, you get, you can get the much, much better, you know, powermatic saw. Right. And I think one thing to note is, you know, right now he's talking about a detached, you know, good size two car garage. Well, you'd be surprised at how fast the, that space fills up um, and how nice it is to have open space to walk around tools and things like that. So, oh, believe uh, me, I know how nice it would be, how, how, how fast that fills up. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, in your defense of having a 32-inch and, and the fact that, uh, you know, you haven't really needed that much capacity maybe a handful of times out of four years, uh, you know, I, I totally get it. But, you know, I'm yeah, right there. but to be fair, he's got a nice tracks all set up, too. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so That's the track saw is a nice thing, but you don't necessarily have to have a track saw either. You can use, you know, for years... I used a, a door board with just a, a regular search saw and that yeah. worked actually pretty, pretty well. And I think that answers it. If I ultimately what it comes down to is if I had the room, I would go for it. That's just my opinion. But you know, ultimately yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with that. Yeah. Ultimately you're going to have to know your, your shop set up and, and uh, determine what's going to work out best for you because mm-hmm. we don't know what size your shop is and what other tools mm-hmm. you have. So I uh, hope that helps. Will. And I'm going to pass it off to Guy. All right. So this question is from Julio. And it's it's kind of a long question. I might paraphrase a thing or two here and there, Julio, and I apologize. But I have a question about Festool sanders. I currently use a DeWalt 5-inch random orbit sander that works well enough. I have it hooked up to a shop vac that I run a standard filter and a HEPA filter at the same time. That's kind of interesting. This results in no dust coming out of the vacuum and it gets most of the dust from sanding coming off the sander. I still have to wipe down my work after sanding, which I do not mind. He says he recently built a desk and had to sand vertical surface for the first time and he was surprised at how much harder this was and how numb my hand was afterwards. Pretty miserable. Yeah, if you've ever used a sander on a vertical surface, with a with a vac attached to it for any period of time, it's not fun. 
So he's saying he has a chance to upgrade to a Festool sander, and he has several different models looking for that he's, that he's, that he's looking at. One of them is the RO250, the RO2 or 125, I should say, RO125, and that's the um, the Rotex right. sander. And what that is, it's actually a, a combination geared sander and a random orbit sander at the same time. Mm-hmm. And he's, say, he's asking if that's going to vibrate more in random mode than the sander specifically designed for random mode. Uh, random orbit mode like the ETS, which is a different model altogether. Um, he starts ask. He's asking a couple of questions about the finish of one versus the other, and he, he also says, "I'm I'm somewhat new to woodwork, and I'm fortunate enough to have a well outfitted shop. He's been working on smaller com- uh, smaller projects, boxes, and shoe racks, and the like. He doesn't really strip or refinish furniture." So maybe not have a need for the removal capability of the RO125, which is Rotex, thanks, Julio. So with all that being said, I have... Pretty good. What's that? A lot of information, but good. He, he yeah, gave, got a yeah. good context. So um, I have an RO125, which is the Rotex, which is the geared sander. I also have an ETS125. Mm-hmm. which is just the random orbit sander. Um, the reason I went with the 125 is because the Rotex, the 125 is a five inch. They also make a, a um, six inch, the 150. Uh, the, the 150, which is a six inch. Thank you. Lee. Sorry. And um, I'm sorry. Somebody keeps texting me. I need to shut my, anyways. So, <laughs> I reached, I originally bought an RO125 because it was within my budget. And I went with the ETS125 because I didn't want to have two different sizes of sandpaper. Right. If I had to do over again, I'd get the 150s. Yeah. They are two completely different sanders. And I use the 120, the, the Rotex 125. I never use it in random orbit mode anymore since I got the ETS. Mm-hmm. So what I do with that one is if I have a something that I really need to sand the crap out of, uh, and I or I need to do any type of shaping with yeah. the sander, mm-hmm. that's where the Rotex really comes in handy. If you're not going to do any of that stuff, and he said he's not going to do any, you know, stripping or refinished furniture, look at the ETSC. 125 or 150. Now those are the um, are the ETS EC 125s and 250 or 150s, and those are the the brushless models. And we have those at work, um, and they're wonderful sanders. The nice thing about that versus a let's say the Dewalt sander. I know you say Dewalt sander might do a great job and everything, but we also had Dewalt sanders at one time. The problem with them is if you don't put enough pressure on them, the pads will not spin. Hmm. They just kind of sit there. You know what I'm talking about? I, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I've never experienced that because I've never had a DeWalt sander. Well, any random orbit sander. Oh, okay. Yeah, like if you flip it upside down and try to sand something on top of it, you'll notice it just sits there and barely yeah. vibrates. It yeah. just sits there and vibrates. It doesn't spin. Depending on your sanding habits can cause pigtails. Mm. can cause problems. So the nice thing about the the Festool sanders, whether it's the ETS or the ETS, I believe it's the ETS EC line. It is. Uh, they spin constantly. 
if it's even if you know even a road tax or the ETS uh, models, they spin. Yeah. Regardless, so it, it's a much better sanding experience. But the the like I have an ETS one twenty five, which I love because it is light. It's not a big heavy sander, and when I have to do vertical sur- uh, surfaces, it's not a chore. Like a Rotax, you hold that vertical for a while. You're going to be feeling it yeah. in about an hour. It's a little bit much. But, you know, as far as, you know, hurting your hand, um, just this last weekend, I did a bunch of sanding. I was out there for about five hours sanding some stuff. I, I put a glove on hmm. to help insulate my hand from the vibrations. And it helps quite a bit. So uh, Even with the Festool sanders? Even with the Festool sanders, I put a glove on. That's a good tip. I'll have to try that. Um, what about you, Sean? Well, you have, I, you have, you have, you have one of the, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you, you have one of the, the brushless ones, don't you? Yep. I was, yep. I came from the DeWalt to the brushless e, uh, e, ETS EC 125 three. And, you know, the, it was night and day. I came, you know, from the DeWalt that had, you know, terrible vibration uh, you know, connecting the shop vac to it was a chore because I didn't buy any of those third party adapters. And it was, you know, right at the end, Rockler came out with that kit that allows you to adapt the different size hoses. Um, right. but I, I was using tape. Uh, <laughs> it just, the dust collection wasn't as good. You know, you'll, you'll think yourself in five years from now, when you switch from an aggressive sander, not aggressive, you know, aggressive in the way that it vibrates your hands because you're right. My hands would go numb after sanding, you know, two or three big panels and I would have to stop or switch hands. And it's just like going from that to the DeWalt or I'm sorry, to the Fest tool where you have um, better dust collection, just a better overall quality. And if you go to the CT vac, it's just part of the ecosystem, you know, the, the, the dial to speed up and slow down the orbit. Uh, you, you may have the higher end DeWalt that has that, but I didn't, it's just night and day. Now between the two, I went with the ETS EC, uh, because I didn't need the, the RO. I didn't, I didn't need those, the aggressiveness that that brings to the game. So I I can't speak on whether or not you're going to get the same quality, uh, fine finishing when you switch it over to the, you know, to the, to the finer settings. I don't know. Now I know a lot of people that have that shape chairs and do a lot of shaping and stuff use the, yeah. the ROs because of, you know, the aggressiveness of removing stock, but I didn't need those and I've not yet needed one of those. So I went with the ETSEC and it's my best investment as far as Sanders is concerned. And, uh, it's just great. I love, I don't mind using it. I don't love using it cause who likes sanding, but I don't <laughs> mind using it. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. So I, I'm in the same boat as Guy. I have both the Rotex 125 and the ETS 125, the older brushed model. And uh, I think if I were Julio, is his name? Is that correct? Julio. Yeah, I'd probably get the ETS 125 first. Um, at, in the beginning, because he's saying he's somewhat of a beginner woodworker, I didn't do a lot of shaping. Um, that, that kind of came later on and that's when I got the Rotex. And I think that's where it really shines is, uh, shaping and stripping. Um, I, I know it can quote unquote do finish sanding and they claim that it's, uh, stable enough to be a one handed sander, but it's really not. Um, I've always used it two handed, even, even in finished sanding. 
Um, but I have not really used a Rotex 125 for finish sanding at all. Very rarely. So that's about all I can add for that. All right. So we're all in agreement with the ETS 125 or the ETS EC 125. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, I think it's Sean's question. Nope. It's no. It's me. <laughs> yeah, yes. it's back to me. Well, I guess I'm wrong. It's Hui's question. Yep. Uh, so this is from Jonas in Germany. He says, love the pack, podcast and the wealth of know-how from you guys. Uh, since what podcast been, is he listening to? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I've been trying to wrap my head around wood movement in general and more specifically around keeping wood straight while still allowing for movement. I'm in the midst of building my workbench right now and a couple of questions have come up. I know that wood moves mainly across its width. Is this still the case if you flip a bunch of boards 90 degrees and glue their faces so face sides together, as is often done for workbench tops? Not sure if that would mean that the top now moves mainly in its thickness or width. Also, if I wanted to build my workbench more like an MFT, but from solid wood with aprons on all sides and less like a traditional workbench, what would I have to look out for regarding grain direction and wood movement? I guess the long sides aprons are not the problem as they would be long grain, just like the top. What about the short aprons? Thanks and keep it up. All right, let's look at the first question, um, which is by flipping a bunch of boards 90 degrees and then gluing their faces together, does that change the direction of the wood movement? So let's say hypothetically, you've got a bunch of common flat two by eights that you're, you know, that you bought to build your workbench. Those boards are likely going to cup with seasonal changes based on the fact that they're flats on cutting them into two by fours in half and then laminating them that creates a riffs on board. If you orient the straight grain facing up, um, and since wood movement occurs radially, radially, we've talked about this before in a tree, um, those rifts on boards will likely see a majority of the wood movement in the diagonal direction because that's the radial direction of which uh, you're cutting the board. So by ripping and flipping, we talked about that, I believe, two podcasts ago, uh, the top will still move a bit over the years, but you'll have a more stable material that's like less likely to to cup. Um, so am I, my, I think he's not talking about a cupping, but growing across its, the bench thickness. Yeah. So it's still, yeah, so if, it, if it's not moving across its width anymore, because you're, you're flipping it on its side, mm -hmm. is it going to move? Is it going to increase in, in, in thickness instead yeah, so, of width? So it's going to, it's going to move perpendicular to the direction of the grain, right? Uh-huh. And so the answer would be yes. And I, I guess I was expounding a little bit more as to generally what you would do is, you know, if you had a two by eight, you'd flip it, rip it in half, generally like a three or four inch thick top. Um, because most of the time you're going to get flat sawn material if it's common, uh, two by eights. And by doing that, uh, you're, you're creating the movement, I guess, diagonally across the face of the grain. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
It, you, your, your bench, it, you use something like that, it, it's still going to move. And that's usually Absolutely. what causes a bench to go out of flat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're usually talking only, you know, thousands of an inch. Mm-hmm. Um, you may get something that that's, you know, you want to have this perfectly flat bench and you're working on it. And all of a sudden, you know, a year later, you're looking at it. And it's like, wow, I could slip like two playing cards underneath there. So that's mm-hmm. like 20 thousandths of an inch. Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal. You just, you know, plane it down, find where the high spots are, plane it down or use a router jig or whatever you want to use to flatten it out. That mm-hmm. comes with the territory. Yep. Yeah. And typically the narrower the board, the less it's going to move, but you can't right. avoid it altogether. So if you have a, yeah. a three inch wide board that you're flipping on its edge and laminating, you know, it's going to move, but not as much as if you had a, you know, a 10 inch wide board. Yeah. You know, it's it's going to move. Not that much. Right. Easy to fix. Right. Nothing yeah, if you, you took that, to stop it. If you took that same square footage of lumber and instead of flipping it on its side in a vertical fashion at horizontal, and you you'd have let, let's say you've and, and at the end of it you've got a, a tabletop that's forty eight inches wide, mm-hmm. it's going to move like a quarter of an inch over over a year yeah. period. Yeah, but we're talking, you know, like I said, you know, a sixteenth of an inch mm-hmm. or so because it's it's only moving against it and plus the glue helps hold it together right there's a lot of glue surface holding that together so yeah yeah Yeah, i was more or less just trying to explain the common practice of of taking that wider board and ripping it in half and flipping it yeah 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 i just think you got really technical you lost me for a second (laughs) i'm not that smart i was falling asleep (laughs) (laughs) so his his took it there sorry about that so his, uh, sorry, you guys felt, you know, asleep for a little <laughs> bit there. I hope you enjoyed the nap. So his, his second question is pertaining to a workbench that's more like an MFT top made from solid wood. Uh, the apron on the long side, he's not so worried about, but what he's worried about is the apron on the short side. And so for that, I would say use some form, you know, if you're bolting the, uh, the apron down, uh, use some t- form of. Uh, you know, washer, elongated washer or uh, elongated slotted holes to attach the apron on. And I think he would um, allow for some wood movement while still being able to secure the apron to the top. What do you think about that? Well, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Cause I, think I attach a lot of very, very large tabletops mm-hmm. to, to bases and just for sake of expediency, because we're a production shop, I use figure eights, mm-hmm. yeah. and I put the figure eights only on the the short ends of the table, right? Or the ends of the table, not the the long sides of the table. Mm-hmm. And I did I did one today where, oh geez, it was a eight foot long, forty eight inch wide. So it was a four by eight, yeah, four by eight top, mm-hmm. and eight. I put four on one side and four on the other side, figure yeah. eights. That's going to give the, the, the top plenty of, uh, of, of space to move side to side. And, and I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. For my workbench, I have the long and short aprons. I did elongated holes with bolts on the short aprons through the bottom to mm-hmm. connect the top. Yeah. And then on the long side, it's just a straight hole right into the, 
Nope. Right in. No, nothing. It's not needed. Nothing. I mean, it lay, oh, lay, okay. yeah, it lays flat on there and I got lag bolts, so they're not small screws. So I think I have two on each end on the short apron. It's kind of like what guy said, just bigger bolts. Yeah. Yeah. So for your, for your, uh, for your tabletops, your traditional furniture pieces, it's the same thing. You only put the figure eights on the short side, not on the long side at all. Oh no, I, I do it all the way around. Okay. 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 I go well, crazy. And guy, and guy, you only, <laughs> you go crazy and guy, you only put it on the short ends. At work, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's correct. And like I said, I can I can attach a tabletop like that to a base in you know half an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. it doesn't take a lot of uh, of time to do, and it works fine. Right, right. Um, if I'm doing stuff at home, I use figure eights, but a little bit more sparingly. I like to use buttons quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in which case I'll put buttons all the way around. Yeah, yeah. but I'm talking about buttons for people that don't know. It's like a I put a, a, a groove that goes all the way around the aprons, all the way around the side insides. And it's just a piece of wood with a, Notch. it's like a rabbited piece of wood. Yeah. yeah. And the, the one end sticks in that groove. And then I drill the other end into the table and it allows the wood to, to move without destroying the, the aprons and all the other work. Right. Well, Jonas, I hope that helps you. Um, good luck on building your workbench. And now I am going to pass it over to Sean. You've got the next question, man. All right. This is from Jamie. Hi, all. Greetings from Australia. Love the show and appreciate your willingness to share your knowledge with people like me who are just starting out. I have a question about router dust collection. I've recently built a router table and I'm looking at the dust collection. I have a router lift with a round body router installed, Australian brand called Sherwood. I am waiting for the port to come for the fence dust collection, but have a question for under table dust collection. What do you recommend here? I've seen something similar, or I've seen something from Milescraft called a dust router 1501 that has a router fence and router dust collection. Currently, the router is mounted on a router lift with, which technically will sit inside of a space covered by a door. Any advice? Welcome. So the Milescraft uh, dust router 1501 great name, but I had to look it up uh, because the name literally does not explain what it is. Um, <laughs> it's a terrible name. And it's just like a, a shroud, like the Festool uh, bit that you stick in the base, a little round plastic shroud with a port on it that connects to your that connects to your, your vacuum. So it's just going to be around the bit to collect mm-hmm. that. Yeah. The problem with that is um, it's only going to collect it right at the bit. And most likely what's going to happen is you're going to get some stuff that it's not going to catch. But right. in my opinion, it's not going to be the, the best solution. And you also mentioned that you're the, that the router currently is mounted on a lift, which is technically sitting inside of a space covered by a door. So it sounds like you've got that area enclosed. So what I would do is bypass the Milescraft dust router 1501 and then just stick a port on the bottom of your uh, little con- the, the container that it's in, the box that it's in yeah. and and collect it that way when it falls or put it on the backside of the box that it's in and collect it that way. My uh, router table is set up that it's in an enclosed area and I have a port on the back. I wasn't able to get a port on the bottom, but I know that companies like Incra, they sell a really nice enclosure that goes over, over the router, has a port, I believe on the bottom. Correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, guy. It's on the bottom. I'm sorry? It's on the bottom. Yeah. And in my opinion, that, and I'm not tested 
very many of these setups, but in my opinion, that's the ultimate setup is a box just big enough to surround the router, have a port on the bottom and don't worry about collecting it up by the bit from the bottom side. Now your fence, obviously you're going to need a little port on the back of the fence to collect it, the two and a half inch port, but uh, you already have it enclosed, stick a port on the bottom and collect it or stick a port on the back. I would not worry about buying the Milescraft Dust Router 1501 because it's just going to collect it right at the bit. You're going to have a lot of overflow, in my opinion, that's that's going to spit it inside of the box. So stick a port on the bottom of the box and see if you can collect it that way. Um, but that's my advice on that. And uh, so Guy has the Inkra box. Hui, what is your setup for your router table? Mine is encased in a cabinet that has a door on it and is sealed so it has like a little bit of that closed cell foam around the edge. And I've got a four inch port going behind the cabinet into the chamber where the router is. And it works really, really well. Do you get any stuff uh, that just collects up by the door? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I just go in there and, you know, while the dust collector is running, I, I sweep some of it in because, you know, it's got it's got corners in it. And so naturally the dust is going to ac- accumulate in those corners. Um, you know, if, it, if there were, I could probably go in there and just round it off and put something to round those corners and it wouldn't collect as often, but eh, too much work. I'll just go in there and just, uh, just push some of that dust, uh, into the port. Yeah. Now I think the ink is it, the bottom of that is all rounded, correct? Yes. Yeah. So it, it yeah, does a little bit better job. Yeah. I've had, I've had several router tables with. Uh, dust collection. I had. I used to have a router table. I used something very similar to the Milescraft 1501. Milescraft should be paying us because we've said their name so damn much during this podcast. But I had something very similar to that. I can't remember who made it. It was not that company I just mentioned. Um, and it worked okay. Yeah. It wasn't very good. All I know is it was cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't work like I hoped. So what I ended up doing was I just built a small pop plywood box like yeah. you guys are talking about around there. It wasn't very big. It was just enough to, to the, the, the router fit in with a four inch port that I hooked up to my dust collection and it worked awesome. Yeah. And I had a, a Y in there for the fence and it just worked great. Yeah. Um, then I upgraded to the, the, the Ankara, full-on Ankara stuff, and their dust collection system is nothing short of awesome. I've also had the Woodpecker. Now, Woodpecker makes a, um, a box that goes underneath the table. It's got a port on the back, not underneath, and it's a square box, mm-hmm. uh, and it works pretty good, too. Right. But... Uh, my favorite of, of out of all that stuff that I've dealt with over the last, you know, 25 years of owning a router table, the, the anchor has been the best. And I believe you can buy, you don't have to buy the whole table. You can just buy, yeah, you just buy box. that, you just buy that, that box. Yeah. And it's, it's not that expensive. Yeah, it's only like $5,000. It's not probably to have it shipped over there. It would be. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it, but, uh, I think it's, I think it's about a hundred dollars. It's yeah. US. Okay. Well, you know, maybe it wasn't as cheap as I thought. I to set up the, even if, if Jamie, if you were to go with the Milescraft, you're going to have to somehow drill a hole in the back to get this 
in there and pipe to your dust collection. I mean, at that point, you might as well just save your money from the miles craft and just yeah. put a port on the back or at the bottom yeah. if you could and collect it and bypass yeah. that. He's got a box already. You really don't need yeah. to put anything on there unless he wants, you know, something a little bit fancier. But I bet no, he just has know, to I, drill a hole. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but I bet going from, let's say he drills a hole in there and puts a port on it and puts his hooks his dust collector up to it. I don't think he's going to see a difference between that and using the woodpecker or using the ancra that I mentioned before. No, I think those they're all going to look. They're all going to work equally well. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I've not tried anything else. But what I'm saying is I was using those as a reference because he already has it in an in, in mm-hmm. enclosed space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm saying. Just drill the hole, put the port in there, and use the box you have. Right, right. Yeah, and depending on the size of your box, hopefully it'll it'll get a majority of it. But if not, just open the door up and blow it back toward the port, and it'll get all the loose stuff out of there. Okay, well, I'm going to pass it back off to Guy for his final question. Okay. This is from Brendan. And Brendan says, hello, I've been a fan of the podcast since the beginning, and I thought I'd finally submit a question. Well, thank you, Brendan. Uh, So I plan to make one of those bathtub trays for my soon-to-be wife. It will be made with one-inch thick purple heartwood with various little slots and grooves and routed-out sections to place a wine glass, hold a phone, or a book put a candle on that sort of thing my question is that don't put any electronics on there though (laughs) don't suggest that my question is what would be the best finish for something like this and that's always going to be used in a bathtub and be exposed to water every time it's used even if it's only for short periods of time i basically only ever use typical sane and brush on poly varnish for my projects but i wouldn't mind using a satin oil finish for the look what do you guys think is the best finish for such a thing? Thanks, Brendan. Well, I'm not going to give a, a, a bunch of different things you can do. I'm just going to mention what I've used one time that worked really well for me. I built a uh, water pond for my stones, my sharpening stones, out of cherry. And I had it for a couple of years. I just didn't have the room anymore. So I, I took it apart. And what I used for that was spar varnish, which is a, a varnish designed to be used outdoors. They put it on like doors and stuff like that. Um, and I bought it in a rattle can and it worked like really well. The, the water, I mean, I had that, I said that thing for like a couple of years. I had water running through wooden parts and mm-hmm. it worked fine. The, uh, the water never did any damage to it. Uh, another thing you could do is, is make the, um, the, the tray out of a rot-resistant type of wood that you don't have to put any finish on, like a teak. But uh, those are my two suggestions. What, what do you think, Sean? I'd make it out of plastic. And uh, <laughs> no. Um, I, I like the spar. Uh, the spar urethane idea is just going to stink for a while. That stuff I've used the, uh, what brand is it? Uh, what is it? Comes in a green can. Uh, anyway, That's the like, yes. Yeah. 
spar urethane, isn't it? I couldn't think of the brand. Yeah, I know what it's called, but I couldn't think of the brand. It's just, it looks great or does a great job. Stinks. But, um, you know, I guess another idea is, uh, you know, just a, a wax oil wax finish, like a, um, some of the type of stuff that you put on a, a cutting board, perhaps, um, you could use a mineral oil with a little bit of beeswax and just touch it up when you think you need it. Um, I don't have a lot of experience with, uh, with, with projects like this. I was going to say spar urethane or something that's easy to touch up like the mineral oil and beeswax type finish. So I'm not going to say anymore. I'm going to give Hui a little bit of room to answer because I've got so many other answers. <laughs> so my father-in-law had a couple of teak boards that he put on top of one of his antique. He's got like one of these antique roof racks that he repurposed. Um, and he used Watco teak oil. And he's um, he hasn't had to recoat that. And it's been on top of his truck for a long time. So maybe try that. I would say maybe give that, and I think that's um, that'll give a good like rich glow to whatever piece you, you know you're applying it to. You might you might like the look a little bit better on that one. So uh, I know the- I know there's a lot of people that talk about the oh I, I just had it tip my tongue. I'm having a senior moment again. Uh, Mark Spagnuolo talks about uh, Verithan or. or so epiphanes epiphanes yeah epiphanes okay. mark spagnolo the wood whisperer talks about epiphanes all the time i think cremona's talked about it a little bit too i've never used that stuff but i've heard very good things about it. it's just really ungodly expensive yeah yeah uh I, so i know sean hasn't used it and Why? i think it what did you say what so expensive oh yeah cheap. i think it drives <laughs> sorry a little, i wasn't I, I, I wouldn't listen when you were talking it's <laughs> So the the minwax spar urethane or the verithane spar urethane, it when it dries, is it kind of plasticky? It doesn't fully cure and harden. It it's yeah, it's f- flexible in that it doesn't it, it expands and contracts along with whatever it's applied to, so okay. that it doesn't crack and and open okay. up and yeah. Okay. No, so it's so, it's not plasticky. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's not. not it, it doesn't. Well, I mean. Depends on how much you put on it. <laughs> sure. Yes. But like I said I used it on that 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 stone pond and it worked it worked really well. I was really surprised at how well it worked. Because even the the holders I was using for the stones that were held underneath the water, mm-hmm. they were just pieces of walnut. Uh-huh. Now I've that, that I, fit I didn't, in this thing and it, it worked, like I said, really well. I didn't spray, so you probably didn't think it was a plastic because you had a nice thin finish, but I brushed it on, and it's just like any poly. The more you put on there, the, the more plastic yeah. it's going to look. Yeah. yeah. Was your spray stuff, was that a Minwax product? Was that a, Yeah, like it was a Minwax. Minwax spar varnish. Okay, gotcha. They might call it spar urethane. I, I really don't know. Yeah, it, I don't it's remember. the same thing. It was thing. a while yeah. ago. Yeah. But I know, I know Freddie Roman has talked about it quite a bit. Um and I think that's that's what he's used quite a bit as mm-hmm. a, a spar varnish. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. take a look at that. My my only other suggestion is stay away from water-based finishes. Or, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know a couple of guys will say, oh, yeah, I've used a water-based finish on outdoor stuff before. And it works. Uh, yeah, yeah, don't do that. Stay outdoor, perhaps. But, you know, he's 
It's going to be in a bathtub. Yeah. Mm, Just don't know. dip it in the bathtub. Yeah. 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 I don't know how I don't know how soap affects anything, mm. but uh, yeah, try that. I like the idea of the teak and the teak oil. Mm. Okay. That's, that's simple, easy thing. So, yeah. um, is that it? Are yep. we done? Yep. Word. That's our last question. Right. Well, I hope that helps. And uh, so I guess it's time. The fun part of our show, we get to talk about what's going on in our shop, and I'm going to ask. We first what he's got going on in his shop as my dogs are barking like crazy in the background because somebody walked by our house uh i just finished all the joinery on the base assembly for my round extension table finally got all that done and i actually did all the shaping on it too so i've got the finger joints i've got a double finger joint on the bottom and a single finger joint on top i also uh, put uh joined it together at the center using splines and then I shaped it with uh, simple tapers and a bevel along the top of the horizontal pieces of my base assembly. So that is all done. Uh, next thing I've got to do is just sand it down and glue it up and then do a little bit of pre-finishing. And then I get to work on the mechanism. Which, Was that uh, your old shop or your new shop? It's in my old shop. Yeah. So are you... It must um, be nice to have two mansions. Yeah, right. All that... I don't know. Rocket scientist money. I wouldn't say our old house is a mansion is a very humble abode. Um, but you've used the uh, guy. I want to ask you this. Actually, this is maybe a seventh question for the show. Uh, you've used those Osborne uh, equalizer slides before. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Pretty easy to install overall. Yep. Okay. All right. I recommend them highly. They're, yeah. They were very easy. And so I had to do some weird engineering type things to get them to work because i was using a you know it's a pet it was a pedestal table right right and i had to do some weird stuff but once i figured it all out man they're they're nice and the table still works really well we just opened it up last week for so i know, think for office. that one you used a solid piece of ash as the sub base for the equalizer slide am i correct on that uh, i believe it was ash yes uh would it be a bad thing to use like a white oak plywood and, or oak plywood, and would that be bad? I don't know. You'd have to run, you know, calculations on that. No, seriously, come on. I have no idea. Oh, okay. I use solid wood just because I wanted the strength of, of the whole power, uh, the, the strength of the screws. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. To um, screw in plywood holds screws well, but not as solid as regular wood. Yeah. No, I I, I see that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I've got going on. Uh, Sean, what do you got going on, man? Um, not a whole lot. I'm um, probably not going to be doing any woodworking for about a month. I've got to do some stuff at my house uh, that's only going to, I can only do on the weekends. Um, so it's probably going to take me about a month before I'm able to get back out in the shop and do some stuff, just some basic remodeling stuff, nothing too crazy. So that's on hold. Uh, I've still not even fixed the uh, the doors yet to get the final shots of the cabinet that's how crazy busy i've been hopefully uh after i get this stuff done we back out there making some stuff so nothing nothing going on here guy oh my turn no yeah. what do you got um <laughs> i was on vacation last week mm -hmm. so, so that you got to work in the shop i got to work in my shop for you know probably about four or five hours a day because the other time i was spending playing with the dog or and or napping <laughs> and it was actually, I was off for 11 days and I call it the 11 days of pizza. So I ate pizza for one meal every day. 
Nice. I gained four pounds. I'm very uh, proud of myself. That's. Um, but I started building my desk and I got almost as far as where I thought I would get, but I got all the legs, um, cut up and all the joinery done, all the grooves for it. I also got all the panels veneered and there were seven panels total that had to be veneered. So I got all that done. What is it made out of it? Is it cherry? uh, Cherry, the, the legs are cherry. The frame of the, the whole piece is going to be cherry. The uh, panels are half inch MDF with the flats on cherry over the top. Hmm, nice. And the drawer faces, there's going to be 10 drawers. I'm putting two banks of four. And then instead of the, a single pencil drawer, I'm putting two drawers in. So I'd have one big long drawer. I'm going to have two smaller drawers. Nice. And then the top, I bought some, it's spectacular, some quilted babinga Ooh. for the top. And I and the drawer faces are going to be quilted maple. I bought some really stunning quilted maple. So they're going to be, the drawer faces are going to be quilted maple with a cherry border and a ebony inlay. And the top is going to be the opposite of that. So I'm going to have the babinga in the center, a maple frame on the outside of it, and then an ebony inlay going around. Pretty neat. Yeah. Sounds it should look really busy and nasty. Ooh. Nobody's going to like it but me. <laughs> it's all that matters. It's your desk. Yep. So that's what I got going on in my shop. And, and I, I guess... That will do it for the show. Yeah. Yep. All right. Sean, do you think that's it? Uh, no, I Anyth- do. Anything else you'd like to comment on or share with us? Nope. That's it. Okay. Uh, we'd like to thank everyone who left us five-star review on iTunes, and it really does help us out in the search rankings. And, of course, and we, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember that this podcast is here to answer questions from you, the woodworking community. So if you have any woodworking questions you like answered, answered correctly, maybe, maybe not. But if you have questions you'd like answered, <laughs> you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can always be found on Instagram at Guys Woodshop. And where can you be found at, Hui? You can find me at Alabama Woodworld alabamawoodworker.com and all my links to my social media are there and sean where can you find you i like the alabama wood world you should have stuck with that yeah i want to Alabama wood world uh simplecove.com and at simplecove on instagram youtube is where i can be found all right right. well i guess that's gonna do it and uh we'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks all right see you see you